Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 29th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So the Omicron variant is upon us. Dow collapsed 1,000 points on Friday. Uh, Israel has closed its borders. Biden announced uh, an end to all uh, foreign entrance into the United States as of today. Uh, he'll be speaking. If you listen to it this afternoon, he will have already spoken, but we're taping at 9 o'clock in the morning. He'll be speaking sometime. He, I think he says 11.30, which means he could be speaking anytime before midnight. Um, and uh, what do we know about it? All... The only thing we know about it is that it is, it has several mutations on it, and what we don't know is whether the mutations are or not uh, susceptible to attack by the vaccines, may elude the vaccines, and therefore might give rise not only to making people sick, but uh, but giving rise to other uh, variants uh, in inside the bodies of people. There's some thought that this single variant may have emerged from a single immunocompromised patient's body, which is pretty staggering when you think about it. Um, and, of course, it just raises the specter of here we go again. Here we go back into the, you know, we're going back into the cave uh, until the demon somehow, you know, eludes us or escapes us. It does, it does suggest that all those things are possible. It also suggests that all those things might not be possible because we don't know anything about this. And the world descended into paralytic alarm over a hypothetical that is today being questioned very seriously by people who are saying, well, wait a minute, as much as we do know about this thing, we don't know as much, just as much about it. And all that is as much cause for optimism, cautious optimism, as much as there is for alarm. But the world defaulted to alarm in a rapid period, a rapid time frame that was not at all justified by what we know. I, I don't think that in the in the best case scenario, you can say that this is cause for optimism. Like we don't want to see variants. Even what we would like to know is that if a variant comes along, it's weaker uh, right. and it responds to the vaccine. It's not a good thing that there's a variant. It's, it's not necessarily a bad, a bad thing. No, not at all. If it's if more transmissibility does not translate directly into worse health outcomes. They're just not coupled that way. Well, well highly... worse health, worse, worse health outcomes than what? I mean, if, if there are less worse health outcomes than Delta, then yes. But if they're less, they can't be by definition, less worse health outcomes then nothing, right? If there's nothing, then you don't get a disease at all. If you get the disease, you're still getting a disease. Maybe it's a mild case of the disease, so you don't have to worry that much. It's just, it's never nothing. And then briefly, and this is the case for yeah. cautious optimism, as I've been writing about this all morning. <clears throat> One, via Dr. Monica Gandhi, who talked to the dispatch, quote, it's really hard for a variant to become more transmissible and more virulent. It just doesn't work that way in the evolutionary process of a virus. Second comes from one Israeli coronavirus expert 
who is echoing what the head of Israeli's public uh, health service said based on the similar anecdotes that we have. All we have are anecdotes. We don't have clinical data. Quote, if it continues this way, this might be a relatively mild illness compared to the Delta variant. And paradoxically, if it takes over, it will lead to lower infection rates. Right. But paradoxically, I'm not an epidemiologist, but um, if it's weaker, it will by definition be overtaken by something stronger. So that's part of the problem here is that... No, not transmissibility. Transmissibility is yeah, one thing. No, and, I know. And I know. The, the worst health com- outcomes are another thing. So if this becomes a dominant right. strain and it's weaker in severity, yeah. then that would paradoxically be not a terrible thing. But isn't a lot of the reaction, the tone of the reaction, particularly in the U.S., um, kind of an attempt to do right. Every time there's a new variant, there's a sort of, we made all these mistakes before. Yes, we didn't know what was going on, but now we know what works. We have to impose it. We have to do it right away. We have to do this. And then there's a lot of debate. There's there's arguments among the public health folks. There's media that that runs with a story that isn't doesn't have a lot of evidence and sort of you know makes it very scary for people because that gets them viewers and clicks and whatnot. But it, I'm seeing that repeat again with this, just like it did with Delta before. It's like, we have to do something. We have to show that we're doing something. There's a political incentive for the Biden administration to show that they're doing something, even though the ban that they issued is totally ineffective from a public health perspective, because it still allows Americans and foreign nationals who have you know the right papers to come in. So if you really were doing this for public health, you wouldn't allow anyone in, right? It'd be a, a real lockdown. So there's just a lot of, there's the tone of it is an attempt to, to look like they're doing it right this time since there have been mistakes in the past. Interestingly, um, what you're not seeing this time, what you usually see when there's a, a new variant in, in the media, they say the same things. They, they usually say um, uh, this one could elude the vaccine, which they are saying uh, about this one. But they also used to always say, and it looks like kids may be able to get this one. Um, I haven't heard that yet uh, this time around. Uh, maybe it's coming, or maybe because the vaccine is now available to kids, it's they're 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 no longer running with that one. It's I, I, that's an interesting point. I mean, as Noah says, uh, there are so little data on, uh, so there are so little on on what's going on because it hasn't had it ha- there hasn't been a mass outbreak that we don't know who it whom it affects and whom it doesn't affect and the way it affects them, the way it doesn't affect them. And all of that. What what is interesting, of course, is that we will default to the same solutions. And this is where I want to sort of bring up something like, uh, so the same solutions are mask up. Everybody, no one takes their mask off. We should mask indoors. There should be new mask mandates everywhere and all of that. Okay, so the Delta variant hit right? Delta hit. And what are the lessons of Delta? Are the lessons of Delta that, that masking helped? Cause I I mean, I would be interested to know whether there would be any way to test as some kind of epidemiological matter, whether masks interfered with the spread of Delta. It looks to me like Nothing really interfered with the spread of Delta except the vaccine. And that um, in the case of, let's say, breakthrough uh, cases of already vaccinated people, which, of course, still remain 
1%, 2% of the cases or something like that. It seems very hard to make the case that masking was effectual, but you'll notice that nobody seems to be doing that study in well, the world of people whose studies will immediately be accepted by the cognoscenti. You know, you could probably have some kind of a study from the masking skeptics that will immediately be dismissed as a masking skeptic study. But I'm just saying we're moving into this next thing. And, you know, the default thing is wear a mask, just like you say, get in the car, you wear a seatbelt. But if in fact, what we saw with Delta was the vaccine is what worked. The vaccine, therefore, has saved hundreds of thousands of lives, it's very likely. Um, And the vaccine is what matters. So now we've given the vaccine to everybody uh, over the age of five or made it available to everybody over the age of five or five and up. And that's the best we can do. And to sort of then force people to continue to live this, you know, semi, you know, faceless life. But I, I assume that I assume there's no changing that. I mean, there have been several studies of masking, that uh, <laughs> apples to apples studies, one very famous one in Bangladesh, uh, uh, comparing two towns that were basically separated, you know, by a couple of miles and had very similar <clears throat> strains of this disease traveling. And one had almost universal masking, one had none, and it demonstrated the efficacy of, of masking. And there have been studies. Right, but, that, in schools but, that, too. But, but that was that was that was without that that was without vaccination. Right, precisely, because vaccination is the primary interference that works. We know it works, and that's what you should be doing. Um, I have a theory that I'd like to run by you that is probably very conspiratorial, but I nevertheless think it has a lot of merit to it, is that the way this happened, the way this panic washed over the news cycle with such alacrity, shaving 2.5% off off U.S. stock indexes, forcing countries into shutting down their borders again, and imposing travel bans on South Africa and the United States, which only took effect today for some reason, even though we already know cases are in Canada and Europe. All this happened because it happened over a holiday weekend, is that saner voices were not present for the conversation, but quite a lot of people who are glued to the news cycle as a source of entertainment because they derive satisfaction from anxiety led the conversation. Now, only today do we start to get actually a little bit more perspective on the genuine threat posed by this thing. I know a lot of there's a lot of resistance to that, but I think there's merit to that theory. Okay, this is why I don't accept that theory. <clears throat> Thursday night, there's a report from the WHO gets on the front page of the New York Times that says there's a new dangerous variant. That is what caused the stock market crash, not conversation on Twitter. There, there, the simple fact of the matter is that uh, news breaks of um, a statistically significant, or at least you know, at least a biologically significant variant in the thing that has, you know, killed 700,000 Americans and I don't know how many, you know, millions abroad and you're not, not going to pay attention to it. Um, the public response to it is led not by people talking on Twitter, but by politicians across the world. Israel, Israel closes its borders completely. Uh, the United States announces it's closing its borders on Monday. Uh, which again, you're right, is a little crazy because if you have to close your border, either you have to close your borders, or you don't have to close your borders. I think Biden and those people are right that you know. I my suggestion is cro- that it, 
Yeah, you're it crossing a Rubicon. Absence. When... It would not. This reaction would not have happened in the with more um, skeptical voices as part of the conversation. Up up to and including the WHO, which on Sunday night produced a statement saying the following: "Quote: There is currently no information to suggest that the symptoms associated with Omicron are different from those in other variants." That's a that's a sentence that could have been included in that in that statement that was released on Thursday because we had the same amount of information then that we have now. I I think the, the the panic was generated by the fact that the first description of the variant and those early stories were all, all about the supposedly extraordinary number of mutations and spikes, right? It wasn't about um, the severity of cases. It wasn't. It was sort of what it, what what they were seeing of the actual uh, what what the, what the variant um, looked like. You know, to John's question about what we learned. From Delta, and and what this means going forward when there's going to be new variants. I think what we learned from Delta is that you can forget about herd immunity, and I think what the the message is what we will continue to sort of learn if and when new variants emerge and and look scary and perhaps are worse and are scary is 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 to discard uh, the notion that there will be a, a post. COVID reality, you know, that I think, I think, I think the, the, the lesson of all these uh, is, is that we're going to have to live with some version of, of COVID indefinitely. Right. We just, we haven't gotten there conceptually, like conceptually this country and the public health establishment, knowing exactly what you say is true is still emotionally wedded to the idea of eradicating the disease. And uh, that's clearly not going to happen. So that, yeah, it then just turns into a second version of the flu. And there it will, it will mutate and there'll be yearly vaccinations against it, presumably. And that's how we're going to live. And the unfortunate and horrible politicization of this disease over the last two years means that that is never going to be easy. It is never going to be a matter of that they provides anybody with, and not anybody, there's a significant number of people who will be provided no comfort by the fact that this is something that we have to live with on both sides, right? The sort of COVID hawks who want to shut society down until they are perfectly safe. And then the COVID skeptics who think that any form of medical intervention to prevent COVID is some kind of plot. But to Noah's and, point, can I, can I just say yeah. one, one other thing to, to what you guys are saying? I think all of this is true, but I think Noah's point about how the public uh, receives information, the impatience with which fear is, is spread is real because we will have, in within two weeks, we will have data about this new variant. We'll have hospitalization rates, we'll have death rates. And they say that because right now the concern is that the, the population that's exhibited symptoms, which are mild, is largely a younger population. So for perhaps for younger folks, it's not going to be as bad, but maybe for older people, it will. We just don't know. But I think Noah's right that 
the fear spreads instantly and the worst case scenario spreads more quickly and people literally can't wait for two weeks. They have to, they feel like they have to either respond in fear or if they're policymakers like the governor of New York, you know, declare some new thing that, that says, look, I'm doing something. And that actually feeds into the inability to live with this as something that we're going to have. And those two, those two polls in this debate that you described, John, are highly unrepresentative of the general public. They are wildly unrepresentative of what the general public is, which is in the middle of those two things, obviously, clearly. Totally, and they don't drive yeah. the debate because they're not talking about them. They're not on Twitter consuming news every day. They're not, they're not in the White House. They're not in executive agencies who are plugged into the news cycle on a daily basis. The people who are plugged into the news cycle on a daily basis are the kind of people who derive psychological satisfaction from those two extreme positions. Look, 80% of Americans over the age of 12 have had at least one dose of the vaccine. 74% five and up have had at least one dose of the vaccine. That is an overwhelming majority of Americans, right? We're talking about three quarters of people five and up. We're talking about uh, four fifths of Americans 12 and up. So there is this rump, right? That, that isn't getting vaccinated and will not get vaccinated. By the way, the rump, uh, it appears that the rump that will not get their kids vaccinated is smaller than a lot of people anticipated it would be. Because it appears that five, five and ups are getting vaccinated. 70% of all Americans of all ages, that includes kids from zero to four, right, who, who can't get vaccinated, 70% are vaccinated. So the vast majority of people are have submitted properly and understandably to the regime that works, that is effective, which is vaccination to prevent the spread of illness or to either wildly lessen the severity of the illness if you get it or to keep it from you altogether. That is fantastic news. And it speaks to Noah's point, which is that the 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 noise the 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 signal is being missed in the noise, which is hysteria on one side and hysteria on the other. And the hysteria on the other is, see, they're doing it again. They need another. They need another variant to keep you locked down. You're hearing this a lot on the vaccine skeptical right. Like there's Congressman, there's Ronnie Jackson, the former White House uh, doctor, you know, um, who apparently, you know, like is a snake oil salesman of a doctor. And like, now he's like, ah, you see, they're making up another, they're making up another variant to imprison you again. I, I'm struck by the fact, but going back to this whole question of how we react to this and granted, I'm now talking about a very elite limited population, but you know, my kids go to a school, my son in school, sixth grade, uh, they do pool testing, uh, every couple of weeks one kid in his grade of 70 tested positive and he was home for a week 32 or 33 kids out of this class they were quarantined i mean they were told to be in quarantine we were not in he was not in quarantine cuz i don't i don't robotically obey the orders of a nurse from my school but he had to stay home from school then we had to get him a, a test that he was negative and all of that that's one kid out of 33. My son had already gotten 
a single dose of the vaccine. If you were double vaccinated, you could go to school. But anyway, so one kid out of 33. That is not rational. But that, by the way, is sort of New York State prevailing systems, right? Test this way. One person gets it. Anyone who is closely, uh, you know, closely uh, in, in proximity has to stay home for a week to 10 days pending a negative test. We can't live like this forever. It is not doable to live like this forever. And we were weeks away from getting out of it. And now we're not, I think, because now there's going to be this new fear. And and I granted, again, we're talking about something that's happening at a – but this is New York State law. This isn't like my school. This isn't my fancy Jewish day school uh, creating these rules. They're following the protocols set by the state of New York, which is, after all, the fourth largest state in the union. It's not, you know, it's not some bizarre – outlier in common sense on the planet it is the fourth largest state in the union so i don't know i mean it's this is very depressing it's very depressing that we're dealing with this it's very depressing we're dealing with this as the holidays are 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 coming and you know what else uh joe biden's only good numbers only positive numbers in polling have to do with his uh reaction to covid uh everything else is underwater this is going to kill it. Here's here's my thinking. Like, this is the last thing, right? Because um, you can't blame him, right? You can't blame him for COVID. You can't blame him for COVID. But it's been a year. As, as of last week, more Americans died in 2021 from COVID than died in 2020 from COVID. Biden's promise was he was not going to shut down the country. He was going to shut down the virus. He did not shut down the virus. Now there's a new variant of the virus. At some point, it's on him. Just as I think Trump really lost the election because of the virus, Biden, we, we keep not dealing with the fact that the continuing uh, you know, death toll from the virus and the uh, way Americans still feel unsteady and all that is having a political impact on him. But I think it's having a political impact on him, and it's about to accelerate. And I mean, it doesn't help that he spent his holiday weekend blatantly flouting the mask, indoor mask mandates where he was in what, Nantucket? Like there's literally pictures of him with his mask off his face and a sign in the front of the window of the place, place where he was saying masking required. I mean, the, the theater, they, they insist that everybody follow this the, this protocol and then they treat it like theater. It's it's That's not good. I mean, I, I think there needs to be honestly a global rethinking of blame when it comes to covid and and politicians and policies and countries and so it's at this late date isn't it obvious that no one escaped that you know all the countries that were praised for doing such a great job you know now that they've all had their big spikes some of them are in the midst of their big spikes you know countries that had that had gone for huge stretches with with you know, cases in the tens or, you know, daily, whatever, or now in the thousands, and then they'll, they'll come back down and they'll go back. You know what I mean? I mean, this whole idea that there was a way to do this, we we did it the exact wrong way, and that it, that's all been made a complete hash of at, at, at this point. I will, I will say this, 
just to just to ignite the rage of the of of our of our listeners who you know who are still big admirers of President Trump, that this is just a reminder of the fact that if he had just not been crazy, he would have won re-election. If he had just not been crazy about COVID, if he had just said, there's a terrible disease, we're working really hard on a solution, here's what's happening, we're spending tens of billions of dollars trying to get a, a vaccine to market really fast, we're building ventilators, here's Dr. Fauci to give you some news, uh, I'm, I'm going to step out now and let, you know, let the COVID response team answer questions. You know, this is America. We're a great country and everything. He didn't start in with the bleach and he didn't start in with the, with the hydroxychloroquine. He didn't start, you know, uh, proffering, you know, quack remedies or pseudo quack remedies or whatever, and just had been normal, like, like dealt with it like a normal person and not like a crazy person the country would have rallied behind him and he would have walked to re-election given the, you know, given the economic reality. He would have looked like he had changed. He would have looked like he was a grown-up handling this. Instead, he looked like a lunatic. Then he got COVID and that was the end of him. And there's Biden. The one reason, again, the one thing that Biden has positively going for him is his handling of the coronavirus. Why? Because he doesn't talk about it every day he doesn't he isn't like talking like a lunatic about it every he could have been he's done some he's done some bad things the you know the osha mandate is bad there's he's done a bunch of bad things but he doesn't look crazy in relation to it okay but i'm going to be the cynic on this one because i think even if donald trump had done every single one of those things pivoted done done everything you say which i you know wish he had because it would have been better for the country he would not have gotten a pass from the media. He would not have gotten a pass from the elite cultural institutions that set the tone of these discussions. And the fear mongering would have in some, in some ways, perhaps even been worse because there would have been a compensation effect. Like he's not taking, you know, he's saying all this stuff, but we can't trust him. He's Donald Trump. Let's look at, let's, let's spin our own conspiracy theories about this. And I think the big assist that Biden has had until fairly recently is, is the media's, you know, totally uncritical acceptance of everything he's done as being the right thing for the country so that i mean i, I know conservatives always i got one i got I, I i the only there's no this is a counter positive right but um liberals hated bush and like said he was illegitimate and he was terrible and everything about him was terrible and 9 11 hit and he acted he like rose calmly to the moment with steadfastness and clarity of purpose and calm he did some pretty radical things in response to it, and the country was with him, and the media found him unassailable at that moment. And this was a comparable moment, and Trump did not rise to the moment, and it was an easy – I mean, I feel comfortable saying this because I was saying it in April and May and June of last year, like, stop doing this. Like, just be just just be normal. Like, why are you doing this? And I think you can see that, you know – but Abe's point, though, is very important, which is you politicize something like this. And, yeah, the simple fact of the matter is diseases aren't political. Responses aren't political. You know, you, you, you play with fire, you get burned. You say you did this wrong and therefore, you know, you are going to reap the whirlwind. And uh, it would be nice, sort of like biblical the biblical logic of sin and punishment, right? You behave selfishly and you will get hit by, you know, 
by by no luck and bad you know the, the the you'll not get rain you'll have drought and blight and this and that and the other thing and it turns out luck doesn't work that way and a lot of disease is about is about fortunes and things that we have no control over and then we 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 hubristically claim that we can control it and that therefore if we're not controlling it that's a choice that we're making there's a demonstration that we're sinful and we just don't know what happened here why it happened what its effect is going to be and what its long-term effect is going to be i do think though that that number this fact that more americans have died in 2021 than died in 2020 if you could have said in the course of a debate in September, October 2020, you know what? I was, a man has just come back from the future, and he says that more people died in 2021 than died in 2020. Would we have believed that? I mean, I think we we thought we thought we were we were coming out of this in the in the late fall of 2020. Things were slowing down, and blah blah. blah. And then the vi- we knew the vaccines were coming. All the tests were looking good. We we didn't think another 350,000 people were going to die. It's punched the heart out of this. It's punched the heart out of this country, and you know the the long term consequences are very very hard to game out. And that is part of the subject of Dan Senor's new podcast with Neil Ferguson that I want to commend to you. Dan's post corona podcast has changed its name um, to Call Me Back. So it's now called Call Me Back. If you have it in your podcast feed, you don't have to do anything. But if you don't, and you want to subscribe to it, look for Dan Senor, Call Me Back. The first in this new series of podcasts is with our friend Neil Ferguson, uh, the eminent uh, historian, uh, economic historian, biographer of Henry Kissinger. Um, And uh, it is a survey of uh, pandemics and the response and the comparisons between the 1970s and the 2020s and why they're looking increasingly eerily similar and uh and it is a fascinating thrilling brilliant discussion and i heartily commend it to you so that's the call me back podcast with dan senor succeeding post corona if you have it already don't need to do nothing but if you don't call me back with dan senor neil ferguson neil of course spelled n-i-a-l-l because you know, he's from across the pond and f- fancy, fancy pants, Irish guy. Um, uh, great writer, wrote a book about pandemics past and present, makes the point here very interestingly that, um, you know, as a sort of per capita matter in terms of the population of the earth, the Spanish influenza, which hit the world in 1918, was 10 times worse in terms of its death toll but that uh, the economic disruption caused by the coronavirus is the equivalent of the effect of a world war all over the globe. The disruptions, the supply disruptions, the slowing down of economies, the, you know, the sort of uh, going on a martial footing in certain ways in certain areas. And that, uh, and that, you know, we have this weird thing, which is that, which is that in terms of, in terms of its effect on the world, it may have been far less than the Spanish flu, but our response to it swamped the response to any crisis ever 
with the effect of the now not transitory <laughs> inflation and various other unwanted consequences uh, as we sought to figure out how to live our way through this. So that's the Call Me Back podcast. Dan Senor with Neil Ferguson. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever you might get your fine podcasts. Just so you don't get a lot of angry email. I'm pretty sure Neil is Scottish. Not Did Irish. I say Irish? Okay, this gives me a moment <laughs> since I said Irish to apologize for an unbelievable mistake I made on the last podcast where I referred to the Jewish tradition of um, nu numerology, let's say, uh, that is, you know, assigning uh, supernatural value to numbers as Gemara, which is actually one of the two books of the, of the Talmud or one of the two sections of the Talmud, rather than Gematria, which is, which is the Jewish numerological, mystical numerology. And so uh, got a lot of emails and as the editor of commentary i'm deeply humiliated to admit i know the difference it was a brain fart and i apologize justice calling neil ferguson irish as opposed to scottish although of course you know if you're if you're a sort of person who learned about all this from mel blank and bugs bunny cartoons there really is no difference after all i mean just as a matter of you just why don't you just speak regular american like a normal person that that's that that's my view Potato, potato. Potato, yeah. potato. Um, okay, so uh, moving on. Um, do, are you guys aware that, um, I don't know if you know this, gun? you know the whole thing about how uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people, and like a lot of uh, gun controllers hate that line because they want to ban guns because they think that the, the very existence of guns is what's responsible for guns being used. So, that, so saying gu people kill people is some kind of excuse. Well, now we have the new phenomenon of the car that kills people. I'm not talking about Christine, the supernaturally haunted car in Stephen King's novel, Christine. I'm not talking about the car in James Brolin's supernatural movie about a supernaturally possessed car or Duel, the Steven Spielberg movie about Dennis Weaver being hunted down by a truck that got mad at him for had a road raid moment and it's 90 minutes. I'm talking about the Waukesha car that the media have now decided is the cause of death and injury and destruction in the parade incident last weekend. The car killed people. The car killed people. It's the Waukesha car killing. No, they don't even say killing. Tragedy or accident. Yes. We don't we don't say killing because both see it with this all started with a Washington Post tweet since deleted, but was out there for for quite a while that stated uh, I want to make sure I, I read it correctly because it was so appalling. It, the tweet said, here's what we know so far on the sequence of events that led to the Waukesha tragedy caused by a SUV. So they didn't even get the article to be an SUV. That was followed up later by a CNN tweet that said about a story CNN was doing saying Waukesha will hold a moment of silence today, marking one week since a car drove through a city Christmas parade, killing six people and injuring scores of others. So of course, not only were we hearing that the car killed people, not the person, but these stories don't go very, dive very deeply into the suspect in custody for these killings who, 
whose social media uh, presence and, and previous criminal records suggest he might have even had a racial motivation for what he did, or in any case, the kind of stuff that when Kyle Rittenhouse was, was under arrest, we saw a lot of uh, attention paid by the media. Um, the New York Post has covered some of this, actually, and looked a little bit at his criminal past. Um, but, the, but the absolute unwillingness to say that a person did this, performed this horrible act, uh, is is very uh, uh, purposeful. This is not an accident. This is this was done purposefully because the race of the alleged perpetrator is more important to protect by these media outlets than talking about what had actually happened. And I think it's pretty disrespectful to the people of Waukesha. Now, the people of Waukesha have also been saying lately they don't want to see this tragedy politicized. And I think that's a very compelling thing that should be heard and listened to. But it, the media is going to politicize these things. They've done it before. But in this case, it was an SUV. And it's it's remarkably unjust because it is, in effect, letting the perpetrator off the hook. I mean, he, he, he still, you know, uh, will have to face trial and he won't, may or may not get off the hook in that sense. But, um, you know, in terms of uh, court of public opinion, um, taking him out of the equation is is just a, a brutal injustice. Unless you perceive him to be an instrument of justice in the sort of cosmic way that social justice accepts a certain level of, uh, of violence as a uh, as do karmic comeuppance for the nation and particularly for individuals born into uh, undesirable identities. And I don't think you can draw another conclusion than to say that between this and the way the coverage uh, of the riots in 2020 was uh, skewed and there was a certain level of policing that went on for anybody who was daring to suggest that what was going on was violent at the time. We can now talk about it as though it, it was and acknowledge the obvious, but at the time there was a significant stigma to saying to, to saying what you were seeing with your own eyes out loud. And I think we can we can't avoid the conclusion that from when the the dominant culture in American newsrooms accepts a certain level of of uh, violence and death in uh, pursuit of their those national reckoning that they really well, want. And that's it's important because I think a lot of the complaints conservatives have long had about media bias hasn't actually focused as much on what this is an example. This is an example of bias of omission. So by not telling the whole story, by by deliberately omitting certain things, they are still the, the reporting becomes a biased way of understanding the issues. And I think that's something that we're seeing. We will likely see more of down the line because it's a little bit easier for the for, for media folks to, to sort of defend what they've done. It's like, oh, we just didn't have all the details or we're just waiting to get more details. No, they have the details. They just don't want to report them as such. Or you could look at it as the following, which is that uh, this is the way they should behave in the wake of a horrifying tragedy that is not precisely understood. Uh, the details aren't in yet. We don't know enough. It sort of happened during a Thanksgiving week. So people couldn't flood the zone with reporters who would go around and find every single person who ever met Daryl Brooks and try to find out what his story was and how politicized he was and all of that. And that, that would be the noble way of looking at it. Like they 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 are being reticent and careful because they they don't know enough. But uh, no such reticence and care is shown in other cases. That that's the important point. No I, such I reticence. I said that last week care. that this was the yeah. responsible way to cover it. Right. When we didn't know anything. Right. We do now. It's right. not responsible anymore. 
Well, what I want to know is, Art, do do major news organizations have 20 people on this story? That's what you want to know. Are people flooding Wisconsin and Nevada, where there was a bench warrant out for him, I believe, right, um, for, for a sex offense? Are they flooding the zone to find out who he was, what he did, what his record was, who he talked to, what happened in his last week? All the things you do when a major crime has been committed and you want to, you know, you want to get down to the bottom of it, like six, seven, eight people are dead, 60 people are in the hospital. This is a, you know, this is a, a terrifying event that has lots of opportunities for copycat behavior. If we were to find out that it really wasn't, racially motivated, that it actually had no place or no role, um, that would maybe do a lot to calm things. But you actually need to prove that, too, because enough people are making the, you know, very plain assumption that this was a response to the Rittenhouse verdict or something like that. What I don't see is evidence of the of the zone being flooded. I don't because it's as though in those newsrooms they're saying no good can come of this. We know that this story is going to come out. We're worried. The story is going to come out that he was a black nationalist of some kind with this terrible record and that he decided to go and try to kill as many white people as possible. And we don't want to tell that story right now. We just don't. We don't want to be associated with that story, even if it's the truth. And I'm telling you, that's what's probably going on. Though no one will say those words out loud, you see, even, you know, it's like no one's on the, on the nose enough. So it's more like, well, you know, it's the end of the year. I don't know. It's Thanksgiving. We don't really know. Let's see what the indictment says. You know, maybe the cops will tell us something, something like that. It's like, we don't need to be activist about this. We don't need to be, you know, uh, proactive in trying to break down what happened in this story. It'll come out in trial. We don't have to take the lead. Because they don't, they fear the result. And of course, if it were, if the races were reversed, they would fear no such result. In fact, they would take it as incumbent upon themselves to demonstrate that something racist and horrible had happened here, and that it would be almost, it would be almost the responsibility of those who were being interviewed to prove the negative. No, 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 he wasn't, you know, he, he, he didn't do it. He, he, that didn't happen. So it's a pretty astounding uh, dereliction. There's another interesting dereliction I want to bring up, and then I got to do many ads. But um, uh, Ben Smith has a piece of the New York Times about a study from the Shorenstein Center at Harvard on misinformation and disinformation that has some weird connection to the Hunter Biden laptop story. And was the Hunter Biden laptop story misinformation or disinformation? Because, of course, it now appears to be true, but it was being retailed by suspicious characters and and there was misinformation. And so, you know, there was an effort to make sure that it couldn't be spread at the end of the campaign because it was misinformation. And um, from what I can tell, this story and this effort by the Shorenstein Center and Ben's story itself is itself as astonishing an act of misinformation as you can possibly have because uh, nothing has come along to suggest that any single a- aspect of this story did not reveal a truth or a fact. Now, there may have been something about the provenance of the computer, but the initial claims that led Facebook and Twitter and all that to suppress the news were 
It's a fake computer. It was ginned up by Russia. This is Russian disinformation to try to get Trump elected. We are not going to go through this again where we allow people to peddle Russian disinformation. And that story was dis that's the disinformation. The disinformation was the idea that it was disinformation. So what they contributed to was disinformation. I happen to think that it's not an important story in this sense. I don't think that what Hunter Biden does, unless there's a direct connection to Joe, is a is is a is a worthy news story. I mean, I I it's fine to tell the story. Trying to do it while trying simultaneously to trash Biden as some kind of corrupt crook, I think is not fair, but it doesn't matter. Like the simple fact of the matter is the story was true. The laptop was a leaked piece of evidence. It was a late hit, all of that. None of that means that there was any dis or misinformation involved. Suppressing it was the disinformation or the argument that led to its suppression was disinformation and the refusal to release the information to a public that could have, you know, taken it under advisement, that was misinformation. This is, this, it's all true. And that's, that's actually, it, it, the Shorenstein report is not even the first sort of, you know, elite stamped institutional effort to, to, uh, whitewash this misinformation campaign. The Aspen uh, Institute has done similar work on, on misinformation slash disinformation. And I think what we're seeing, because if you if you look to what I believe it was Jack Dorsey of Twitter later said, ah, we probably shouldn't have done that. Oopsie. There are no consequences for this among these institutions, because it's not just that if a single outlet says we won't publish that, uh, someone else will, and there's a kind of healthy competition. There is a kind of groupthink that goes on among these elite institutions, which has led to where we are now, which is, to, and, and there's a similar effort under underway with regard to the Steele dossier. It's not a reckoning. All these reckonings that these newsrooms claim to have had about race, they cannot have about their own inability to report on on stories that don't suit their, their ideological priors. So that is the, the effort to call all of this to justify it as oh it was we thought it was disinformation we thought it was misinformation that itself is a kind of propaganda and you're going to see a lot more of these important blue ribbon commission paneled reports by people at elite institutions saying just that it's it's a way to cover their own butts quite frankly and it's sort of appalling john i'll just disagree with you slightly on on the matter of whether it's a big story or not <clears throat> i think i mean i agree with you it's not a big story unless it, it means that uh, it, it actually implicates uh, Joe Biden himself in some way. Um, I, I do think that's a slightly bigger unless than than you do. Um, in that, I, I don't know. I don't know that it, it actually implicates Biden or anything. But but it, at the very least, um, it demonstrates that he has not been truthful when he said that he has no idea what Hunter is up to. Business, you know, that he's. Uh, completely ignorant of uh, of his son's business dealings. Um, I think I think there's enough there to to say that's not true. Well, he lied I mean, and said he hadn't met with some of these guys, and there's right. actually proof that he was hanging out in my neighborhood at Cafe Milano with these guys and Hunter. I mean, yeah, he lied directly to the public about that. Fair enough, um, guys. You've heard me say I love my X chair, by far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. Uh, and and also one of the coolest looking pieces of furniture you can own. Um, what makes the, the X chair the world's greatest office chair? Maybe it's the patented dynamic variable lumbar support or the fact you can add LMX technology with four massage options 
and the ability to warm and cool your back. No other office chair can do that. So now is the perfect time to purchase an X chair. Why now? Because now is the only time X chair goes on sale all year. That's right. Only on Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend. Come on, you deserve an X chair and you're going to kick yourself if you miss this special deal. Save up to $500 on the X chair. Four days only on Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend. That means today. Go today to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $25 a month. Go today. This is Cyber Monday. $500 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Save up to $500, xchaircommentary.com. And look, the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, accounts, finances, and devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. The internet has connected us with the latest news, long-distance friends, and funny animal voices, but it also connects us with hackers and cyber criminals, and Aura protects you from the worst of the internet, so you can still enjoy the best of it. This digital security protection keeps your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all in one protection. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with a million bucks in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription with an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone. Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. For a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. Um, word came uh, the day after Thanksgiving that Stephen Sondheim had died at the age of 91. Um, on December 10th, uh, a new movie remake of West Side Story opens, directed by Steven Spielberg. This was the first work uh, to which Stephen Sondheim uh, contributed professionally as the lyricist. He was 25 years old. That was 1957. Uh, as of this week, in New York City, when uh, with theaters reopened, off-Broadway, his famously troubled show, Assassins, a very strange show, is playing at the Classic Stage Company on Broadway a gender-switched revival of his landmark musical company has reopened on Broadway. It was about to open when the virus hit and shut Broadway down in March of 2020. Um, Stephen Sondheim's uh, life, therefore, if you think about it, uh, uh, he is the signature figure uh, in the world's oldest art form. Uh, in the United States, right? The theater is the world's oldest art form, pretty much. Um, certainly performing arts form. And he was the dominant figure in the English-speaking theater over the last 64 years and remained a sort of vivid presence. He His last show went up in 2008 and, and didn't really open um, 
but he was a, a vivid and vital presence really until the mid to late 1990s as a as a as an originating artist uh well well into his late 60s um uh so why does this matter well i would say two two things uh one is that um his death brings to a close maybe mel mel brooks is still alive at 95 and he is sort of a figure in this too but a, but a much a much broader figure his death brings to a close the moment in which the period in which um america seized center stage as the leading creative force uh in the west both in popular culture and in and culture generally like if you think about the 1950s it was still the case well through into the 1980s uh that the world of culture believed that america was culturally inferior to europe was uh philistine babbity uh france was so much more sophisticated and had television programs in which philosophers debated each other in highfalutin ways and england you know had its great theatrical tradition and playwrights and 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 the west end and 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 novels and novelists and all of that and and at some point in the late 40s early 50s america just exploded outward uh after you know some explosive moments in the 20s and 30s with uh incredible uh vitality force and self-confidence the, these new writers uh jewish writers often black writers also you know Bellow, Updike, Updike, not not a Jew. Bellow, Malmud, um, Roth, uh, Ralph Ellison, um, poets John Ashbery, Robert Lowell, uh, painters, the Abstract Expressionists, um, and and uh, the world of the world of of uh, of movies and songs. So it was even then the idea was that somehow the Europeans made higher higher value movies and did better theater and all of that and by the 1950s and sondheim was a key figure in this uh it was clear that american theater was the heart of of theater in in the world and that and that yeah there was still samuel beckett was still tooling around and there were some important british playwrights but all the life and lot all the life in theater came from broadway all the glamour in theater came from broadway and Sondheim was a key figure in that. West Side Story uh, was the was it was a landmark musical in its own way, followed uh, by the single a musical many people think is the single best musical ever done. Gypsy, which is a show that also he only wrote the lyrics to, and then in 1962 he began writing the music and lyrics to his own shows. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Anyone can whistle, and then in 1970, Company, which was the breakthrough show that uh dispensed with plot and 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 became it was a was was a concept show it was about marriage and relationships in our time it wasn't you know a sort of story show it was a it was a it was an impression show a feeling show and um with dazzling endlessly dazzling songs followed by another show called folly folly's famously problematic book endlessly dazzling songs um, and then leading up to his masterpiece, and my view, the single greatest piece of American theater, Sweeney Todd in 1979, which is a very singular op opera, operetta um, about a 
<laughs> you know, about a can about a about a uh, vengeance-filled uh, barber who uh, creates uh, creates a a business uh, of uh, cannibalized meat pies based on a 19th-century melodrama. Um, high watermark of American theater, the most beautiful score ever written for for the American theater. Sondheim was able to write lyrics as witty and dazzling as Cole Porter's or 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 um, or Lorenz Hart's, and uh, music as heartbreaking as Jerome Kern's. Though he had a perverse streak in his music, where he did not want to make it, he never resolved his songs in a way that led to the kind of hook or button that made you go, oh, this is the best thing ever. Oh, I love this. I just want to hear it again and again and again. He was a, he did not want to satisfy in that way. And that, that is a problematic feature, but I, but in the, in the longer, in the largest sense that I wanted to bring oh, up here. Can yeah, I disagree ahead. with that? Yeah. I, sure. I think, I think it satisfies in a, in a, in a very different, unique way. I don't, I don't think it's problematic at all, actually. I, I, uh, I, I think, you know, there's so much of that elsewhere that you can listen to to Sondheim and, and sort of find a different kind of beauty in, in that music. <clears throat> I mean, right, I think no, the, the amazing yeah. things about him is that he had this extraordinary success while being genuinely weird in, in the composition of his art. Right. I mean, when I say, what I mean is that there's a way that songwriters finish hit songs, which is also, which is sometimes called the button. You put a button on a number so that it's like, you know, it slows down at the end, so it gives the sort of da, 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 and then that final note, you're sort of programmed to hear, draw the applause out of you, right? And just suck the applause out of you. So if you've listened to Hamilton, which is, you know, the most accomplished show probably of the last, you know, 25 years, you'll notice that almost every song ends as a showstopper with that kind of button. And the weird thing about Sondheim is he he genuinely seemed to resent the button. So so that though though it's there, and even not even some of the songs that people know most famously, like there's a love ballad in Sweeney Todd called Joanna that ends with the most gorgeous flourish. But um, but you don't even know that 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 song. Uh, and the other weird thing is like his greatest pop song. Uh, ever, ever written um, is um, uh, is in the show Assassins, and it's called "I'm Not Worthy of Your Love." It's a beautiful kind of, like almost like Eagles California rock soft rock song of the '70s, and the whole point of it is it's being sung by the girls of the Manson family to Charles Manson. So that's the weirdness. That's what the beauty and the weirdness all all mixed together. But I do think this final point that I'm trying to make, which is that he brings to a close uh, the age in which America was announcing to the world not only that it was the world leader in terms of democracy promotion, it was the richest country in the world, it was the most powerful country in the world, but that it was going to set the agenda, the artistic agenda for the rest of the world in painting, in music, in in culture, in poetry, all of that, like almost everywhere you can turn, um, it uh, it had that it had that quality, and and 
um, we lost it. Uh, I don't know why we lost it. So that's a whole, that's many novels. That's a, many, many, many cultural examinations that would explain why we lost. I'm not sure anybody else has it or that that could even be many more. But um, Sondheim was one of these explosive figures. And it should be said, though he was in no way, shape or form, he had no interest in it. He didn't write about it. He didn't feature in it. Um, was a classic American Jewish success story, though from a wealthy family, wealthy German Jewish family, grew up on the Upper West Side and on the Upper East Side before going to boarding school, and um, and uh, and but you know was one of these people who came out and said, "You're I'm not, you can't fit me in a box. This is my country too. I'm going to do whatever I want." And again, at this unholy age, you know, wrote this enduring classic that we are now going to get to see another version of uh, on December 10th, uh, West Side Story at the at the multiplex. Uh, with that, let me uh, close up by talking to you again about our friend David Bonson and his book, There's No Free Lunch, perfect holiday gift for anyone in your life who needs to learn about the connection between liberty, free enterprise, and faith. That is the subject of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, a page a day, designed like a devotional, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that goes through um, thought after thought, idea after idea, ballasted by quotes from the greatest thinkers, the greatest writers, the greatest economists, uh, on the topics of what freedom is, what 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 liberty needs to be understood to be, and how economics works, and how uh, you cannot understand economics without an understanding of liberty, and you cannot understand liberty properly without understanding faith, and how the three uh, are together in what somebody once called the eternal golden braid. So that's there's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths from our friend David Bonson. Get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Download it, buy it, give it to a friend, put it in your stocking, put it in somebody else's stocking. You know, we got seven more days of Hanukkah. Fantastic Hanukkah present for the person in your life who would really benefit from it. And that's from David Bonson of the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. So, do we have anything? left to bring up who's excited about biden's omicron speech not even a little bit <laughs> uh but if how... he's smart he won't bang the drum that his constituents want him to bang his this, this administration's constituencies really really like the COVID status quo they do and the fact that he is playing to them is a detriment to his political position and he should knock it off this administration, as you said earlier, owes its existence to a campaign trail promise to tame this virus. They have failed. Perhaps they failed in a way that isn't their fault, but they have failed proudly and with self-confidence and never admitting the extent to which these conditions are out of their control. And that's killing. Okay, well, we will probably talk about it tomorrow. So for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.